So speaking of relatives, my dad's relatives are mostly in Alabama. And so as you can imagine, it was not very doable for us to attend any of their special events. Now, I have a lot of cousins because my dad has 14 half-brothers and sisters. But I was never able to attend any of my cousin's events, even though for the most part we shared not only a similar name, sometimes quite exactly almost the same age, never was able to go to any of their graduations or anything like that, and they never attended any of our special events as well. But there was this one time when our daughter Marie was very young, we received an invitation, a one-of-a-kind invitation to attend the wedding of the only eligible female on my dad's side of the family. And by eligible, I mean somebody who lived close enough that we could actually attend her wedding. She lived in Yakima, Washington, no less. And so we packed up all of our family, every single one of us, and we were the only people from her mom's side of the family attending in her behalf, right? So it was absolutely awesome for us and awesome for her because we were it. We were the only family she had attending. And her husband, you know, he had all kinds of people from his side, and she only had us, our family. Well, as you can imagine, we were treated pretty well. We were the only people there from her side. And it was pretty good. But little did we know, little did Nancy and I know, how much our daughter Marie would be affected by this wedding. It was the first wedding Marie had ever seen. And after coming home, Marie played wedding for weeks and months. And uh, she dressed up this favorite doll that she had. This doll was actually quite tall. Uh, she dressed up this favorite doll uh, to be married. And she even renamed her uh, after the girl whose name was Terry. And she remarried this, this doll off many, many times, dozens of times. And I can remember uh, Marie and I were having to, to walk up and, uh, you know, a kind of hand-created aisle, we would walk up this aisle and we would walk down this aisle over and over again. In fact, one time, she even talked Dad into doing the father-daughter dance, which Terry and her dad had done, and I'm no dancer, so uh, it was a huge stretch for me to try to pull this off, right, uh, with my uh, just few years old daughter. But there we were, enjoying the moment. And Marie talked about that wedding, it seemed to me, for a long, long time, it, until, that is, the day dawned, when Marie, still very young, was invited to be the flower girl at a friend's wedding. And of course, you know, she was invited to come early and get all the pictures taken and uh, all dressed up, you know, looking her very best, and so was everyone else. And this wedding was was, you know, the family represented probably the most popular family in, in that church congregation. The place was packed out. I could not even find a seat. And so that's a totally different story because of what I was doing at that wedding. But, I mean, literally packed out. And here was Marie, the flower girl. Well, she talked about that for a long, 
long time. Yeah. Now, since I've become a pastor, you can imagine I have celebrated a number of weddings and officiated a number of weddings as well. And I think that weddings are a lot of fun to, to be at. They're always very special. It's fun for me to see, you know, the, the bride and the groom and all their families and how they get together and how they do things, how the church surrounds them and puts together a wonderful occasion. A lot of fun. Which brings us to Jesus. You see, Jesus compared knowing him to celebrating a wedding. Jesus compared knowing him to celebrating a wedding. Is that what your relationship with Jesus is like? Celebrating a wedding? Jesus was speaking to a very large crowd of people. In fact, the crowd had grown so large that Jesus actually had to step out on a boat so that people could see him and so he wouldn't be crowded out into the water so everyone could hear what he had to say and watch his face as he spoke. He got out on a boat and he continued on addressing them. And then Jesus told some of the fishermen, maybe some of the people who even owned those boats, if they would cast their net out, they might actually catch some fish. Now, these fishermen were a little reluctant and a little suspicious that anything good would come of it, but they did it, and to their astonishment, to their amazement, the nets were bursting full, and they brought in all those fish, and the Bible says the boat nearly sank from the amount of fish that they took in. And then Jesus said to these fishermen, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Well, one of them, Peter, threw himself down at Jesus' feet, and he says, Lord, I think you need to leave me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus knows that we are sinful people, and he still issues the call, follow me right? Jesus's call was so very strong that these fishermen left that huge catch of fish. And, and I have to admit, that would be no easy thing. For those of you in some profession, think at the moment of your greatest success in your profession and leaving it behind right then, right there, so that you could follow Jesus. For me, back in the day, that would have been maybe the biggest sale I ever had as a locksmith. That was my former occupation. That former sale, uh, that thing resonates in my mind as a $10,000 safe I sold just off the cuff to someone. Huge sale. What if I had that and I walked away before I realized that when the money hit the bank, I was gone? At the moment of their biggest success, they walk away to follow Jesus because his call is so powerful. The Bible tells us they left everything behind. There's more. There's more. Jesus went on to speak to a large crowd of people who ended up actually following into a house. And you'll remember the story of how while he was speaking there, four men 
had a friend who was in desperate straits, completely paralyzed. They had to carry him to Jesus and, of course, let him down through the roof. They tore a hole in so that he could be healed by Jesus. And the Bible tells us Jesus not only healed the man, but he forgave him of his sins. Right? The scripture tells us that this man's life was powerfully changed in that moment. Powerfully changed. And we pick up the stories that we want to look at today at this point. Found in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Luke 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. I've never been real fond of paying taxes. Any of you maybe like it better than I do? I've never been real fond of paying taxes. I realized at one particular point, probably at the point when I was becoming a Christian, that yes, taxes could be useful, that yes, I did appreciate having my roads fixed and you know, lights you know, installed at intersections and all that kind of stuff. I did appreciate the fact that people kept this country safe, etc. I did appreciate you know, building dams for electrical power and all that kind of stuff. I did appreciate that stuff. And it took me a while to learn to appreciate paying taxes as much as I finally have been able to. And even now, I still, you know, have a problem when that year-end year stuff comes around and I know how much they want from me. Perhaps the, the worst part of my, my, time, uh, my professional career was when I was locksmithing and I had sold that big safe and I would made some serious money that month. The most money I'd ever made in a single month, the tax man came immediately afterwards. It was the timing of uh, everything, and boy, I must say, it was incredibly disheartening to realize that over 30-some percent of what I had earned was gone. Disheartening. Here Jesus is inviting a tax collector to become one of his followers, and I can understand, I can resonate a great deal with anyone who would say, why him? Why him? But you, uh, you know that uh, they weren't the most honest people, and this we see it's, you know, not just from culture, but we know it from the scriptures. In Luke chapter 3, verse 13, it's John the Baptist who says to a group of tax collectors, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you, which is highly suggestive that they were collecting way too much than was what was actually due. And John was saying, if you want to follow God, you need to stop collecting too much tax. This guy is right in the very act, just as the disciples were right at that moment catching the biggest catch of fish ever, this guy is sitting at his tax booth, raking in the money as Jesus comes calling. Have you ever had Jesus come calling you when you were at your most successful? Twisting your life into something entirely different than maybe ever before? 
Or maybe Jesus came calling you at the moment of your greatest weakness when you had just given in to the worst sin of your life. Jesus came calling, follow me. Why would he do that? Follow me. We read as we continue on, and he got up. Matthew, Levi did. He left everything and he followed Jesus. No hesitation. No hesitation to, to realize, to finally experience in his own life that somebody cared about him enough to say, follow me. I'm sure he had heard of Jesus. Most people in the area had probably heard of Jesus. And what he heard, he liked. Do you like what you've heard of Jesus? Are you willing to immediately follow him? Because the Bible says, this man got up. And he too left everything. All that money sitting there? Are you kidding me? Left it. Left it and followed Jesus. We continue reading, Then Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. This is, I believe, the natural outcome of following Jesus. That is why this statement, you know, uh, immediately comes after the one that tells us he began to follow Jesus. We learn that following Jesus is an increase in your sociability, your desire to be around other people and to influence them for good. Following Jesus changes you. And makes you want to be with other people. And help them also come to follow Jesus. Well, the Bible says he gave a great banquet. Now, if I remember right, there's a parable uh, in the New Testament that talks about a guy who gave a, a great banquet. It's the only two places, I think, in the New Testament where that phrase is kind of found. This man throws a big party for Jesus at his house. Not somewhere else. Well, I don't know how many times I've thrown a great party or a big party in that sense of term, but I've thrown a few. In fact, this last Sunday I did. The youth came over to our house, right? Malvin whipped me in a couple of games of pool. Yeah, he's smiling. He enjoyed that. Uh, we had some good times. We, uh, we ate too much. Uh, we, had, uh, we had some fun games. We enjoyed each other's company. Do you know what it's like to open your house to others that they might know Jesus? We continue, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. Not only was it a huge banquet uh, in terms of a lot of stuff being offered to the people who came, a lot of people came to enjoy it. And it was not a lot of people who were different. It's not like Matthew said, well, you know what I need to immediately do is go out and find myself a better class of friends and bring the better class of friends to Jesus. Because that's not what he did. What he did was he brought the class of friends that he had. You and I have family members. You and I have friends. We bring the ones we have to Jesus. If we've begun to follow him. Now it's interesting. It says tax collectors and others. Doesn't name 
who they might have been or, or what their status was in life, particularly. But notice that they were sitting at the table, you know, all together. They were all included, Jesus and his disciples and, and Jesus and these tax collectors and others, all enjoying the same thing, all enjoying each other's company. It's not like Jesus had, you know, said, look, you know, I, I'm going to sit on this side and those of you who are, you know, not so good in character, you go over there. All together. And we read on the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples saying, Why? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Greek word that here is translated complaining is a fascinating one because it has quite a history. When they decided to change the Hebrew uh, Bible and, and turn it in, as it were, to a Greek one, what we call the Septuagint, the very Greek word that's used here for complaining is the same word that is used to describe the Israelites grumbling as they wandered in the desert. Now, would you say this characterizes the uh, Pharisees and their scribes just a bit? I don't think so. And they were complaining to Jesus' disciples. Now, the last I checked, it was Jesus who was the guest of honor. Why would they be complaining to Jesus' disciples? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Attacking what they perceived to be the weak link in Jesus' group, which was not Jesus, they began harassing those who followed Jesus most closely. And they ask him the why question. Now, I believe why questions generally are a good question, but sometimes they can also have a hidden agenda. And in this case, what we want to know is, does Jesus answer their question? And how does Jesus answer their question? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And notice that they have turned what was tax collectors and others into tax collectors and sinners. Right? Sinners. Uh, element of judgmentalism has decidedly surfaced. Do you find yourself looking down your nose at other folk who somehow are not as good as you for one reason or another? Maybe they don't speak as well as you, sing as well as you, work as hard as you, look as good as you. They aren't as smart as you think you are. Tax collectors and sinners. I mean, even if they're right, even if these people are sinners, it's still judgmental, implying I'm not one. Is that how you and I think of ourselves many times? And so Jesus answers the question, why do you eat? Not the question that was posed to him, however, but the question that was posed to his disciples. Jesus comes to their aid and their defense. Something he always does. Jesus comes to the defense of people who are struggling to find their answers. Jesus said, well, here's the reason why I do it. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, in context, I am pretty sure that what Jesus means isn't that the Pharisees and the scribes were righteous and were well, but rather they thought they were. They were quite sure that they were righteous. They were quite sure they were in no need of healing from God. Jesus does not directly attack them, however, because just like Jesus comes to the defense of his disciples, Jesus always softens any kind of a rebuke he might have. He's very careful when he disagrees with other people, very careful not to push them away. And so he says to them, I've not come to call people who are well, but those who are sick. Sin is a disease. Did you know that? In Scripture, everywhere, it's pictured as something that needs a remedy, a sickness, a disease, a mental health problem, not because people with mental health problems are necessarily worse sinners, but rather that Sin, evil, is a type of insanity. And Jesus has called us to change our minds, to repent, to change our minds about God, and to see that God is the kind of person that Jesus paints him out to be, not the kind of person that others paint God out to be. We continue reading, then they, and the Bible doesn't say who they is at this point, then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Now in John chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, we read, John the Baptist once said, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus is actually going to pick up on the theme of John the Baptist, whom they speak about. They bring John the Baptist's name into the equation, and Jesus is about to comment using the very words of John the Baptist in response. John's disciples, they say, and the disciples of the Pharisees frequently fast and pray. And what Jesus is going to go on to say, and in this is a, not only a rather direct attack on Jesus and his disciples, contrasting them with both John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees, but Jesus is going to go on to say, look, mixing the reforming message of John the Baptist with the traditions of the Pharisees is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. Missing the uh, mixing the truth that you and I discover in the scripture with a bunch of guesswork, patchwork beliefs that have arisen out of tradition is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And the question, of course, to Jesus is why? 
Why do you and your disciples not fast as others do? Why? And so Jesus answers that as well. He says, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can you? Can you? And here the penetrating question of Jesus is very remarkable. It cuts right to the heart of the issue. And what he says is, look, when you've just found your friend, your savior, there's no room for anything other than rejoicing. No room at all. It's all about celebrating and not about mourning. Now, Jesus doesn't disrespect fasting. The Bible makes it very clear that there are times that people should fast. Jesus comments about those other events, various times. But here we see this notion also that the bridegroom could be taken away. And Jesus, of course, went on to die on Calvary's cross. There was certainly a time when the disciples of Jesus were very mournful. That time changed rather rapidly when he rose from the dead. Jesus also went on to tell them a parable. And what he said was this. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one would do this. Now, I suppose you could say this is an exaggeration by Jesus. I'm sure someone has tried doing this, and that's why they don't do it a second time right? It's because experience teaches us, logic as well teaches us, this is a bad idea. Because unshrunk cloth put onto cloth that's already been, you know, washed and shrunk some, is not going to work out very well. Plus, it, it may not even match. It may be the wrong color, the wrong style, Trying to fit Christianity into our old way of living, Jesus says, is a bad idea. So you may be asking, you know, uh, I'm looking at um, perhaps, you know, it's the end of the year. Maybe I'm thinking about making some changes in my life. What kind of changes should I make? Jesus is going to say wholesale changes. Invite me in. I'm knocking at the door. But let me caution you. That if you think you're going to continue to, to be able to do, you know, live life the same way you lived it before I came in the door, well, that's not going to work. It's not going to work so well. The two don't match up. Jesus went on and said, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled in the skins will also be destroyed. And once again, we heard it for the third time. No one, no one, no one. Right, actually, second time here. No one, no one. Logical experience tells us. We'll pick up the third one, though, next. No one does this, Jesus says. Logical experience tells us a bad idea. You put the new wine in the old skin, and guess what? It starts to, it 
you know, ferment, and pretty soon the old wine, which is no longer flexible anymore, is going to blow up, and not only will you lose the skin, but you'll lose the contents. Bad idea. Trying to mix the new stuff that God wants to do in your life with your old way of living, bad idea. Bad idea. Everything will be lost, wasted, ruined. Jesus went on to say, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Ah, this is Jesus's point. And what he's trying to say is, we need to be made new in order to be given the truth that God wants to give us. In order for us to go on to become the people that God wants us to be, we need to be made new, entirely new completely changed so that we can realize all the good that God wants us to have. And then the third no one is different. And no one after drinking old wine desires new wine but says the old is good. Bad ideas about God are not putting the good ideas we know about God into practice Either of these will destroy our appreciation and our desire for God and the truth that he's willing to share with us. Either of these things, bad ideas about God or not putting the truth we know about God into practice, will ruin our desire for God, our appreciation for truth. What's interesting then is when we look at these three stories, no one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. You notice the, it's from new to old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, new to old. And then reverse, no one after drinking old wine desires new wine. Jesus clearly changing it up and saying something entirely different. And in one case, he's saying, it's logical to do this. And in the other case, he's saying, the person who does the opposite is going to experience a ruined life. Drinking, in this case, alcoholic beverages, does not lend itself well, then, to saying, well, I think I'll just take a cup of Welch's grape juice. The person who goes down a particular path has a hard time changing. New wine has to be put into new wineskins. This is Jesus' point. We need to be made new. We need to realize all the good that God wants us to have only by becoming new, by being born again. We are completing not only the year 2019, but we're also completing the decade, right? 2010 to 2019, the 10 years known to us. Looking back, is it okay to ask this direct question? How have you used your 10 years? Have you used the 10 years well? Have you used these 10 years well? Or have you used these 10 years poorly? 
or maybe flip-flopping, sometimes poorly, sometimes well, but at the end, you're not very satisfied. You've lived a life of regrets for the last 10 years. Are you and I better people because God gave us another 10 years of life? Or would we perhaps even need a do-over? Which, by the way, we don't get in the real sense of the term. But what we do get is another potentially 10 years. Most of us will realize another 10 years. And we can choose to let God change us from the inside out. God can make us new and fresh. And the next 10 years can be so much better than these 10 years. According to Jesus' parable, though, if you and I don't make this choice to let Jesus into our hearts, we don't make this choice, our lives are going to be ripped apart, unsightly, destructive, and a waste. Why not then make the logical choice? The best choice. The choice that leads to all the fullness, the blessing, the richness that God wants for us, for each of us. Why not let Jesus make us new and fresh at the beginning of not only this next new year, but the beginning of this next new decade? What could we do differently? Well, we could spend more time, for some, some time, for others, more time praying. We could spend time praying ourselves praying. God wants to hear from us. We could spend time studying our Bibles, cracking open that book and reading it from cover to cover, slowly, carefully, spend time reading our Bibles. We could make new friends. Notice that's what Matthew did immediately, uh, went out here and he grabbed a hold of a bunch of his friends and he said, Jesus, I want you to be their friend as well. We could bless other people. He threw a big dinner and invited Jesus to come. We could do sociable things with other people. We could work in our communities and bless them. We could volunteer at varying schools. There are a bunch of them in this valley, and I would bet most of them would appreciate it if we would volunteer. Mentor some students. There are a lot of places in this valley I think we could volunteer at. Jesus said, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. This is his point. We need to be made new, and then we will realize the richness that God wants us to experience. It may seem strange after issuing you such a strong challenge, because it is not only the end of a year, but the end of a decade, and I feel like a strong challenge is worthwhile. But what I want to say next to you is very simple. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I want you to have a happy New Year. I want it to be the happiest New Year of your life. I want it to be the happiest decade you've ever experienced. And I know that it can be. When Jesus is knocking, open the door.
and let him in. Jesus himself described the experience that you will have. It'll be a life of joy. He said, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Every wedding I've attended to was a happy one. And there's a reason. There's a reason. Having Jesus in our lives is like celebrating a wedding. Celebrating a wedding. Join me, please, in making the most of this new year and the most of this entire new decade of life. Join me as I invite Jesus into my life. If that's your desire, would you kneel where you're at and pray with me? Father God, we are here before you asking you to take our lives and shape us. Come into our hearts and give us this wonderful, happy, celebratory life that, that you have always wanted for us. Help us from the very beginning of our new life to reach out to people around us, to invite them in and, and come meet Jesus as well. Father God, change us and make us completely new so that our lives, or instead of being a mess, will be wonderful and happy. Father, we want to ask you to forgive us for all our past mistakes made not only in 2019, but throughout this last decade. Forgive us for each of them. And then work in our hearts and cleanse us so that this next year and this new decade will be so much better for us and everyone who meets us, everyone who is in the sphere of our influence. Help us to be the new person that you 